Robots vs. Dinosaurs is a proud member of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. Check out Apocalypse Podcast Network for more great podcasts. The following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Robots vs. Dinosaurs is brought to you by the 28th Street and Crescent Bodega. <laughs> Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. The Lego Movie, Coraline, Orange is the New Black, Tremors, Tremors 2, Tremors 3, Jimmy Neutron, The Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Sausage Party, Bojack Horseman, Rugrats, Man of Steel, Full Metal Alchemist, Game of Thrones, Ghostbusters, Total Recall, and BAPS. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots or dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. This week I have, as my co-host, Jelani, they are a queer artist and podcast co-host of the show Pod Queens, which can also be found on the Apocalypse Podcast Network. Hello, Jelani. How are you doing today? I'm good. It's been a lovely morning. I feel very excited to discuss our movie today. I am too. Why don't you tell the audience what movie we are going to be discussing? Okay, so we are going to be discussing the, I wouldn't call it obscure, but I wouldn't call it super famous, the movie Nine. Just nine. Numeral nine. A, numeral nine with Elijah Wood. Mm-hmm. It's an animated film that came out in 2009. It's directed by Shane Acker, who uh, I looked this up. He, uh, Jelani, have you seen the, the short that this is, the, like the nine minute short that this is based on? No, I saw like a brief, I didn't see the full thing, but I did see like a, a little like, this is based on this. It's pretty much the, the the first scene in the movie when it gets attacked by the cat skull robot creature, uh, which we're definitely going to talk about because it's an awesome design. So Shane Acker made this 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 nine minute nine ish minute short called Nine as his uh, it was his his uh, senior project his thesis project I think at UCLA and mm. he's a visual effects artist primarily. This was this is the only movie that he's directed and written. And I think it's very good. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if obscure is the right word. There is a word for what this is because I've talked to a lot of people that know of this movie, but they never saw or they remember the trailer for this movie because it's a good trailer, but they never mm-hmm. saw it or they never heard about it. It, it. it did fly very, very much under the radar, but I think it's a great movie. And let me ask you, because uh, because I always I always want my guests to pick the movie. I don't pick the movie that we review every week. I always <laughs> have the guests pick it. So Jelani, what made you pick this movie? Because it because it's it's un it's an unexpected pick, and I like that about it. So this was honestly the first movie that came to mind because I'll be honest, I'm not much of a robots or dinosaur person. And I was like, okay, robots, robots, robots. There's gotta be something that I've seen. And then I remember this movie, which uh, to be honest, the last time I saw it was probably, I think I've seen this movie made three, three times, like initially in 2009, probably sometime after that. And then again, this year (laughs) or last year. Okay. It's yeah, this is only my second time watching it. I saw, I saw it in the theater. Actually, I was very excited to see this movie in the theater, largely because of that trailer. 
Uh, the trailer is very exciting. It has very cool rock music in it, and it shows all the cool action scenes from it. But I don't think the sh- I don't think the trailer really shows how contemplative this movie is and how how uh, philosophical it is about like the human condition and and what we do to ourselves to bring to potentially bring about the apocalypse. Yes. Because this movie just starts right off in this post-apocalyptic world. Like, the world is already destroyed. And all that there there is to introduce us, the audience, into it are these, these weird little puppet creatures. These sackcloth puppet creatures with, like, zippers and buttons and weird, like, telescopic eyes. How Would you describe these as robots? Because there's clearly robots in this movie. But would you describe mm-hmm. these, these uh, ragdoll puppets as robots? As well. Well, I think, I think that's such an interesting question. And I think to watch it, you have to watch the film kind of because there's no doubt about watching it that they have some sort of soul and like some like human essence to them. And I think the, the question for me is, can like robots have that? Like in order for something to be a robot, can it have these natural humanistic qualities or whatever? Or do we have to like disqualify them as robots because they're clearly something more, quote unquote? Well, let me ask you the question I like to ask every guest. Uh, in your words, Jelani, what is a robot? I think in my world, a robot is a machine built for a very specific task and job. I guess that's my like bare bones definition of a robot. Okay. So I think with that definition, I would be prepared to call these little ragdoll puppets robots because they do seem to follow some sort of internal imperative that they themselves don't quite understand. They know that they're driven to do certain things, especially the the main one that we see, the Elijah Wood character, Nine, seems to be driven and and actually at some point in the movie, in the first act, takes a very, a very dangerous action that leads to the soul-ripping death of a couple of his friends. Just And he doesn't even understand why he did it, just that he was compelled to do it. Um, so I'm referring mm-hmm. to when he plugs the, the little coin into the big uh, mm-hmm. machine, the robot thing. Truly set up the rest of... It's not even like act two. It sets up like the the second half of act one and all of act two. Great storytelling. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is he doesn't, he's seven asks him, why did you even do that? What what were you thinking? And he's, and he's just, he, could, he can't even come up with an answer. He's just like, it was the same shape. Uh, just, uh, yeah. He's like, <laughs> thing fit in whole, I guess. <laughs> So let's talk about where the ragdoll puppets came from then. So the movie starts with, I always like to talk about the, and dissect the opening shot of a movie. And uh, Jelani, this is something interesting. I just had uh, your friend Sajda, your friend and my friend Sajda on the podcast recently. And do you know what movie we we discussed? Oh, I think I know, but I kind of forgot. What was what it? <laughs> How to Train Your Dragon. That was it. And I had the other pod queen on here, uh, Gamal, and we talked about the Iron Giant. So what I think is interesting is I've, I've invited all three of the hosts of pod queens onto my show, and all three of you chose an animated film. And I love that. That is actually interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on uh, any theories as to what might have, that coincidence um, might have happened? I was actually just talking to a separate theater person the other day. Um, so it's no shock that me, Gamal, and Sajda all have a common interest in like theater. And I was talking to someone else about theater because 
I think that sometimes it can be really limiting in the things that we want to do and, you know, see. And so I was like, oh, this, I have this one specific idea that I think would be really cool to see animated, but it would, could only be done animated because I think that's the thing about theater. Like it pushes us to think about how do we put things on stage? And there's some things that you just can't. <laughs> yeah, there's certain limitations to real life that animation can can break through. And the other thing that I think is really great is, is because I'm watching these movies and taking notes the entire time and, and looking for small visual details or clues in the background, with, with animated films, every single thing you're seeing in every single frame is deliberate. There, there's no mm-hmm. accidents. There's nothing that was put there. Everything that was put there is by choice. And in a movie like this that's rich with details, where we have these tiny little, maybe like six-inch tall uh, sack, sack puppets um, navigating this, this human post-apocalyptic world, they interact with all of these everyday objects that become much more significant or, or are, are utilized in unexpected ways. And it's really cool to see them when they're featured, but also just when they're casually in the background because mm-hmm. nothing is, is in the background by, by chance. It's all by choice. Yeah, and I mean, even what we know of the world, I mean, to be honest, that could have been like, what, like 40, maybe 100 feet of a town, of a Mm -hmm. city. It's crazy to think how big and yet how small that world was, because it truly all happens just within like feet of each other because they they also can't only travel but so far on those tiny little legs <laughs> yeah yeah they're uh, when the, the at the point when they have a map that's really fun because that's when that point is really well illustrated that like it's a zoom out of this you know a city block that they're essentially on but they have a whole map for it like it's a fantasy world um and i love that little how everything is from their perspective the the uh, the ragdoll puppet's perspective. So things that are normal size to us seem like these gigantic, impossible to explore worlds. So our opening shot is gla- just a, a pair of glasses very close to the camera. We see an, a needle coming up into the frame. And then um, this is where I really started po- noticing how, because it's an animated movie, everything's on purpose, we see these dirty fingers threading the needle comes into the frame. And I love the fact that like the, the fingers are kind of dirty. Like these are the hands of somebody that has been working. And I noticed mm-hmm. that because in a Pixar movie, if we get a close up of, of somebody's hands, it's all like pristine, right? It's round edges and, and very clean unless, it, unless it's like something just happened. But this little detail of just like the dirt between his, his uh, fingerprints and everything is, is re- I think is really nice. It actually um, reminded me this... of mm. another movie that came out that year, which was Coraline. Mm-hmm. Like, that shot feels so much to me like the other mother making the Coraline doll and, like, sending it out into the world. Yeah. And uh, when, we see the, when we see these fingers, these glasses, the needle, we don't know who this character is, but um, there's really great score playing over it. Uh, I looked it up. There's two musicians credited to the movie, Deborah Lurie, but also Danny Elfman. And I don't know how mm-hmm. much Danny Elfman did, but there are certain themes in here where I was really noticing and I was like, this sounds like an Edward Sisterhands kind of score. And, and Danny Elfman, it's no surprise that he's attached to this film because it is produced by Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. So there is this narration that uh, comes over these images we're seeing. And we hear a voice saying, um, we had such potential, such promise, 
but we squandered our gifts, our intelligence. Our blind pursuit of technology only sped us quicker to our doom. Our world is ending, but life must go on. And these dirty fingers place a button with glowing green symbols on a what looks like a, a broken lamp. And then we see this like sack creature hanging by its wrist by a cord. There seems to be like a, a trans, like a cut, like some time has passed and a strong breeze knocks the sack boy uh, out, out of the lamp thing that he's hanging from. It picks up the little green button that we saw in that shot and it opens up the zipper on the front of its chest and just puts the button inside and closes it back up. It then sees the the sewer, the person with the that, that obviously created him, his creator, dead on the ground. <laughs> do you think that, well, we get the answer actually later. I was going to ask, do you <laughs> think that, that, that he died in the blast? Because clearly like this, there's been a nuclear blast or something outside of the window. Actually, no. So yeah, we find out later how he died. <laughs> um, so what we, what's revealed is that this is the scientist that, uh, that created mm-hmm. these ragdoll creatures. Um, so this first one, it has the number nine written on its back, painted, I guess, or, you know, whatever on it, on, on to its back. And that's interesting because that already implies that there are eight, eight more of these somewhere. We don't know if they're also autonomous and, and running around alive. Uh, actually, so that's the first question that gets answered is <laughs> nine looks out the window and sees another one of himself sort of running around. And um, this turns out to be two. Uh, nine tries to yell. We see nine like opening its mouth really wide and like, mm-hmm. clutch its throat, but it can't yell for some reason. And so then immediately it, it goes outside to try to to find out what what is this other creature that looks like me. It's like uh, digging around in, in in some of the rubble. It seems to be foraging for something. So it's curious and it goes out to see what it is. And on its way, we see the devastation of this city block. We see that like the entire, all these buildings have been demolished and there's just rubble and and destroyed vehicles all over the place. There's some army vehicles all over the place. And this, this is when the movie is telling us right away within the first couple of minutes, it is not a kid's movie. It's an animated cartoon, but it's not a kid's movie because we see this, this woman and her child, like a, a nine finds a woman and, her, and um, she's clutching her child. Uh, just the corpse of these two people <laughs> in a car. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Do you think, Jelani, do you think there's any chance that a parent might have like seen the trailer for this movie <laughs> and not expected? Like they might have taken their kids and then when they see that image, they're like, oh no, this is the wrong movie. <laughs> oh, 100%. I think people underestimate animation all the time. Like there's this assumption that for some reason cartoons are just for kids. Um, and I think that's a twofolded thing. I think that one, we make a lot of animation just for kids and two, the adult animation that we make is really, really bad. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, I'm actually not a personal fan of like Family Guy, American Dad or whatever. I am a huge fan of Bojack Horseman. I think that that's one of the best adult cartoons out there. But yeah. uh, I think that cartoons like that are far and few in between. Okay. I, I'm, not fam- I'm not super familiar with Bojack Horseman. That's about like a like a retired actor or something. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's very depressing because the whole, so what I like about it, sorry, this is a tangent, but I'm a tangent person. He, so first of all, it's a continuous story. The, the episodes never reset. He's never in like a new set of circumstances and old things didn't matter. Like the world tells you very quickly that your actions do have consequences and these consequences can like build upon each other. But I think the, 
the thing is, like, he's an actor in L.A. He is a really fucked up person. And he's surrounded with people who are also, like, fucked up in their own way. And throughout the course of the, like, six seasons, he tries and fails repeatedly to be better. But it's not him failing that I think is the thing that you need to pay attention to. It's like why he fails. He's not Mm. consistent. He doesn't work hard at it. He doesn't like truly want to change. He just doesn't want to deal with the consequences of his actions. Whereas his friends who do want to change and do want better for themselves quickly. And by the end of the story do realize like, Oh, I can change and just be the better person that I want to be, even though it's hard, which I think Mm. is a really like, lovely story wrapped up in some really great comedy awesome spoilers for bojack horseman um (laughs) (laughs) i uh when you said adult like adult animated cartoons sadly and then you said family guy sadly my brain went straight to sausage party which is this Mm. kind of awful uh (laughs) i know of it (laughs) yeah animated cartoon movie that came out a couple years ago What's weird about Nine is is like that image that really that image of the woman and her child in the car really stuck with me, and so I'm convinced this this movie is is not made for kids. It does have a message that I think is really good for kids, but mm-hmm. it's also it doesn't lean so much into being graphic or or dealing with adult themes that I would say it's for adults either. I would describe this as a YA animated movie, like a young adult animated movie. I get that. Yeah, it's definitely. I think for someone who can handle death, but I also think think that yeah, it's too. I think that the movie is actually phenomenal in that it handles a lot of things like honestly, climate not climate change, but the idea that like we will destroy our planet. But also, I think there's this very. I mean, people online have used the word like eco fascist a lot. It's centering around this idea that like oh, we're going to destroy the planet and we're going to destroy people and da da da. We're kind of going to destroy the planet, but what we're more so going to destroy is ourselves because life on this planet will somehow find a way to survive. And I think that that's one of the important things about this film. I think it talks about choosing a path for yourself and like figuring it out. It's not like other robot movies where the robots spend the whole movie like questioning, am I? Like they just start with the assumption that they are. Like these robots are honestly so human and very baby-like, but also teen-like where they're just like, I am, I don't need to question myself. I'm going to question the larger world around me. I love that. That's a really great encapsulation of that. Yeah. It's, yeah, that's, that's a great, great point because in so many robot movies, it's about like the becoming self-aware or the becoming a person, but these start off as they have their own personality. They have their own wants and desires and thoughts independent and they disagree with each other, which is fun. Um, even though they're all clearly from the same line and they have very fundamental philosophical differences and they, they really like dig their heels in when they're, when they're debating like what, how we should do things and what we should do. Yeah. It, yeah. Before, we're we're going to talk about each of the sackcloth creatures and we're going to have, we're, we're going to come up with a name for them to refer to them <laughs> very, very, very soon. I think <laughs> they have that's the numbers. handy. What's that? They have the numbers. Well, like them as a whole, rather than like sackcloth creatures, um, oh, I have you, a word for them that I that I want to use, but but we'll get into that in a second. I just want to kind of get through like this opening sequence when Nine sees two foraging outside. Another thing that sets up what this world is, is he sees this poster. He doesn't really pay attention to it, but the camera shows us this poster on the wall 
uh, that has a fist holding cables and it says revolt. And then in contrast to that poster, which seems to be this poster seems to be there from like a, like a protest group or like a the rebel resistance group. And that's contrasted with the symbol that's painted onto the walls. And we see it on this giant imposing building that's still standing, this very authoritarian looking symbol. And we end up seeing that same symbol on the robots. It actually looks like the robots that we see later that we find out caused all of this devastation, this rubble and everything that's being surrounded. So nine encounters, number two. Number two, voiced by Martin Landau, who's got a th- this contraption that he seems to have built with like a spoon and a candle and a glasses lens so that he can operate with a crank, the the spoon and and basically make the flame from the, the light from the candle flame uh, be projected or what's the word be magnified through the through the glasses mm. lens and act as sort of like a flashlight or, or a torch and it's really cool little innovation it obviously wouldn't work but it's <laughs> it's a cool little like it wouldn't work but like the time they took to do things like that like later when they have the light bulb and they turn the like spear into like yep. a, a torch they obviously sat down and were like listen these things might not be like scientific but like we should have like a set way in which things happen like they're other than the sort of soul transferring thing that happens to bring these dolls to life there's no real like magic everything is straight up science yes and they're very yeah they're very resourceful they use the what's available to them in, in this rubble world and they and and also that is scaled to their size so the like a, a regular size spoon to us is something that's like convex enough that it can reflect the light from a, a candle and for their purposes it creates enough light or enough of a beam uh to to to, mm-hmm. to see so yeah so we get uh let let's talk about the cre- the creatures themselves that we see. Um, obviously, there are nine of them. Do you, by the end of the movie, have a favorite one of these? Seven is my favorite. So I think that the robots are not... I think that the gender of these could be debated for hours, and I think that at yeah. some point I might debate them for hours. <laughs> but I think that Seven is my favorite because I think that the movie purposefully tries to code Seven as like a more female gendered robot, even though I also, again, I could talk about that for hours. <laughs> it does. And there also seems to be a weird, almost obligatory romantic subplot that doesn't exactly go anywhere, but it does end with with nine and seven holding hands at the end in a way that's not necessarily romantic, but mm-hmm. it does feel but like I the obligatory storybook ending. They definitely tried to reach for it or wanted to allude to it in some ways. And I was I think, appreciative that they didn't lean too much into it. I'm glad they didn't lean too much into it. I would have I would have actually preferred that they pulled back on that a little bit, especially when you find out that if there if there is a romantic subplot between nine and seven, it in my opinion, it's I don't know if incestuous or masturbatory is the right word, but we <laughs> we fight you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. I do. I would if I had to describe it, I guess I would say masturbatory, but I also, I don't know. I think that they're their own people. And I think that, so I don't know if you or anyone else listening is going to know this word but or phrase, but biological predeterminism is a thing that's often talked about in gender studies programs and like 
amongst gender studies people to talk about the ways in which people say like, like you are male. So this, 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 like the idea that your gender is determined by your biology and that that determines your life. And I think that one of the cool things about this movie inadvertently giving genders to these robots is that they say fuck you to biological predeterminism because if you're coding this doll as a female and she came from this male and she has his soul or whatever you're saying that regardless of that she is her own individual person and has sort of become this person i don't know of her own i don't know if it's her will i don't know if it's just how she developed period yeah this movie seems to (laughs) posit the theory that your soul is composed of nine personalities or nine parts. Well, maybe I'm sort of retconning that, but it's it, the reason I'm, I'm building that theory is because what we find out, yeah, is that the scientist that we saw at the beginning, he created a device or perhaps discovered a device that would allow him to split his soul into nine different creatures that could each carry a piece of it. And so that is what imbued them with their own personality. It's almost like the movie saying, like, there are these are the nine aspects of this guy and, like, mm-hmm. different parts of himself that, that add up to a whole person. But at the same time, they're all in each individuals. So it is interesting that one of them is, like, gendered as a, a female. Because, yeah, what I, what I want to take away from that is, like, and, and this is just my takeaway. So you can agree or disagree. The movie's kind of saying, even if you're a male scientist, if you, even if you're a dude scientist and you split your soul up, some part of you is feminine. No matter how much you're, no matter what you're born with, no matter like what your genetic makeup is, we're all human beings. It's, it's very well known that we all start in the womb as one, one biological mm-hmm. gender. And then it takes a certain like chromosome shift at some point to be like for your body to become a different gender type but that just proves that like every single one of us has the same has has every gender inside of us or at least the potential for every gender inside of us so if you split your soul into nine pieces it would stand to reason that at least one of them would be the opposite or maybe a different gender than the one that you might present as in your in the living world if you're this scientist in the living world you know i think Um, that does that, that's a reasonable conclusion, especially given what we're presented with this movie. And I think that also, like, I mean, first of all, masculine and feminine are just words. They don't mean anything. Right. I mean, they mean things because we assign meaning to them and we assign things masculine and feminine. But, like, we all just have different parts of ourselves, period. And I think that the that is one of the things that the movie is touching on. And I think it's really interesting that... I think it's also really interesting the way they chose to split it up because I'm someone who looks at costumes a lot. And so mm-hmm. I think if you look at it close enough, the twins, who I think are three and four, while they're dressed similarly, they're not dressed the same. And I think it's to allude that one is like masculine and one is like feminine. But that's neither here nor there. The point being oh, that they would that they would take the time to do that. And again, it's animated, so this is, we know, intentional. Yeah, that would make sense. It's kind of like a Phil and Lil from Rugrats thing. I noticed that the, the <laughs> twins were, from from what I could see, they seem to be made from a pair of gloves, which, which seems to be very fitting. Because mm-hmm. each of them has this little extra bit of cloth hanging off of them as if it's like the thumb part of the glove that doesn't have a limb to come out of it. So, but, but my, that might've just been me looking for meaning, but it does seem like three and four are made from a pair of gloves, which would make sense because they're twins. But, uh, but yeah, I do appreciate that. Other than the fact that the movie, 
the the other characters use the use pronouns for for they say her they say she when they're referring to seven other than that there there really isn't anything other than the fact that i know jennifer connelly is the voice and jennifer connelly is a woman that's the only reason that i would say oh seven is is the girl of the nine because really the the movie doesn't the story doesn't take any go uh, doesn't go to any painful lengths to make it like oh she's the girl she's different because she's the girl it's just she's the one she's the if anything makes her different from the other ones it's she's the like samurai of them yeah (laughs) that's who her character is first before she's the girl one um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah she's got that really cool like bird helmet i love oh my god i loved that it was like the coolest thing to me when i was little for some reason i was like it's so like she just puts it down and she's in like warrior mode <laughs> yeah and the cape and the spear it's really cool that that and uh the number eight is actually my favorite because because the big I, one yeah and it's because <laughs> i want these things to be action figures and number eight would be the coolest <laughs> action figure it would have like the big sword which looks like it's from like half of a scissor with a nail for a hilt it's got the like a thimble helmet and the coolest detail about number eight is it has this magnet on its back that it uses to sort of put its sword away, like when it wants to carry its sword around. Uh, Later on, we also see it taking that magnet out and sort of like erasing its brain or like doing some sort of thing that that seems to be like it's taking drugs with a magnet. That was really interesting. Love that they put it in. I hated eight because I was like, you're such a following little bitch. And if it wasn't for you, one would have (laughs) no power. Like I hated eight. (laughs) Yes, eight is the most flawed of them all. Well, no, that's not true. Number one is the most flawed. But eight is the one, I'm sympathetic to eight because eight seems to to have the least critical thought. And so it's easy, it's easy to see how it got caught up in one's plan or became a follower of one. It's unfortunate, it's sad. You're right that it sucks because it's the only reason one has any power at all. I think it's hard because the movie, I would say the only thing I'm unclear about with the movie is its message in regards to the nine of them, because it seems to me that they are all individual. I mean, I guess you could just say like, Oh, they're stronger together. But to me, the movie made a very specific point of trying to address the fact that each of them is sort of lacking something as a part of being split from this one person. But I also think the movie shows that they are each their own individual persons regardless of that and so Mm. i wonder if the movie wants us to see them as each individual little monster or like are they a unit that needs each other to be i think yeah i think there is definitely sort of a collectivism message here that you know you can't you, you can't just be this uh this independent rogue hero and save the day on your own you need other people People need other people. You know, humanity mm-hmm. needs to cooperate in order to survive and overcome all of the things in the world that are trying to destroy us constantly. <laughs> I think it's very, that's a really good point that each of them, I was looking at it from the perspective of each of them has something that makes makes them unique, but I wasn't looking at it from each of them is missing something. And that's what makes them drawn to one another. Why don't we go through these one by one? Because I wrote them all down so we can mm-hmm. sort of characterize them all. So number one, voiced by Christopher Plummer, is uh, this one's, uh, I wrote down he's uh, Sack Pope. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> got that like tall hat with like a penny as a, as a adornment on it. He's got a scepter and a cape. 
um, with a jewel clasp. And his whole philosophy is a group must have a leader. And of course that leader is, is him. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think he's, he's like the wise one definitely, but I think that it makes him blind to the, to the, what you said, like the fact that like other people are needed and you can't just go around sacrificing people because it seems like it's in your best interest or in the interest of the group. No one left behind type shit. Mm-hmm. Number two is uh, voiced by Martin Landau. This is the inventor one that we see early on with the spoon, candle, glasses invention. This one is also very friendly immediately to our protagonist and is excited to see him and, and protective of him and gets captured right away. <laughs> mm-hmm. So my big question is, how long in between the scientist creating number one and him creating number two, how long do you think there was? Okay, I actually don't know the answer to that question. My question is how long until nine? Yeah, so how long between each each one of these? Like what mm-hmm. incrementally um, because nine what compelled seems him to, be, to keep building more of them? Right, and like nine seemed to be to come out so much later than everyone else to me because everyone mm-hmm. else experienced the war and experience yes. everybody dying and nine just emerges in the world with it already over. So that to me is, I mean, but maybe the scientist was busy with the end of the world. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it is implied that it. this scientist is responsible for the end of the world. Um, when we see that propaganda video later on, it, it is heavily implied that he's the one that created the machines that brought about her destruction, as well as the little sackcloth creatures that, are supposed to save us. So yeah, so that's number two. Then number three and four were told early on are dead, that they were killed by the beast, but they actually show up later on. And these are the twins that I said, each one seems to kind of be a glove. So number one and number two, interestingly, are vo- both voiced by older voice actors. So their voices are meant to sound o- old from the perspective of the other sackcloths, dolls, we're meant to to reveal revere number one and two as like the elderly of the group. Three and four, when they show up, clearly they were made at the same time. So I think one was the obviously the first, the prototype. Two was an improvement on that experiment, and three and four seem to be the scientists thinking, "What'll happen if I what if I split whatever it is into two mm-hmm. different things?" And I think that's the reason why maybe they can't talk or don't. Is it that three and four can't talk or they just don't talk? Does that ever come up? I don't think so. And I I would be interested in the answer to that because it seems, I mean, because I think that that's a really plausible idea is that like, because they're split, because he made them at the same time and they're basically the same and split the same, they like something went wrong and now they can't talk. I also think it, could be maybe part of the design because it doesn't seem like they, like they have that weird eye thing that no one else has where they like very quickly blanket things, record information, and then can like play it back. True. So it almost seems like they don't need to, yeah. but I don't know. No, I like that. that they, they don't need speech. They have, a, they have their own form of communication. And I like, mm-hmm. I like that a lot. The next one is number five, voiced by John C. Riley, And this is the one that's missing half of its head. We see like... <laughs> Um, from when they are involved in the war, how he lost uh, like half of his head. Number five seems to be number 2.1, in my opinion. It's it's like from the scientist perspective, like he made two, two was whatever, but then he thought like, oh, I can can make a next version of two. And that's what five is. Because five seems to have a lot of the same personality 
and draw towards inventing things with whatever they have available on hand. I think the only difference is that five is more cautious. Five is a bit meeker, mm. whereas two seemed really, I wouldn't say bold. He was like, yeah, let's make friends. Yeah, five describes nine in reference to two. He's, he's talking about two when he says, you're just like him, you forget to remember to be scared. Yeah, that was the line. Yeah. Then number six. Number six is Crispin Glover, or, you know, the dad from Back to the Future. <laughs> George, Mc, George McFly. This is the one with like the striped cloth, like he's a, a prisoner in an insane asylum. That's that's the immediate visual cue that I got from his costume or from costume from his body. It's mm-hmm. not a, he's not wearing something that is cloth is his body. Uh, he's got a key around his neck and he's constantly drawing and he and and he's talking about the source. He's another so, one that's really interesting because the point of his design it looks like because his fingertips are like little ink well things like that you dip in ink and so i felt like i don't know if the scientists knew that he was going to be insane but i feel like each of them sort of maybe had a job and his was definitely because he also has this forbidden knowledge which makes him insane right he has the knowledge of the source and so his job was really just to like articulate to them as best as possible we need to get there we need it yep the next one is number seven, who we talked about a little bit. That's the one voiced by Jennifer Connelly. This is the one that's like most, it's it's the most, like right off the factory line, it is ready to be a hero in the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's ready to kick ass and fight and not have any fear. And you said, you said this one's your favorite, right? Number seven is your favorite? Yes, I love a baddie. I... I have issues with authority, basically, especially when I think that they're wrong and don't want to admit it. And so, like, one to me was the absolute worst. And seven was all about, yo, fuck one. And also she kicked ass. So I was like, yep, (laughs) that one. Yep. Uh, Number eight is, I looked this up, voiced by Fred Tadaschiori, who is, you might not know him from anything, but he's like a very, his, his IMDb page is a lot of animation and a lot of other, he's a big voice actor. And we talked a lot about number eight. Number eight is my, visually my favorite one from like a design standpoint, from an action figure. If they made action figures of these, it's the first one I would buy. (laughs) And then of course, number nine, our protagonist, Elijah Wood, which is... It suffers a little bit from protagonist syndrome. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Where it's like the least, it's not uninteresting, but it's the least interesting out of all the characters. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of times, I feel like a lot of times people are like, yeah, it's the protagonist, who cares? You know, this is the protagonist. This is who we're following. It, sometimes I think it's almost purposeful. Like I think that Orange is the New Black is a very good example of like purposeful, poor antagonists or protagonist mm. where Piper, have you seen Orange is the New Black? Yeah, Piper's the worst. Piper's the worst. She's so uninteresting. You don't <laughs> care about her, but she's specifically there to guide us into this world yep. full of more colorful people and to like almost be a surrogate for us and how we would sort of react to being in these sorts of situations. Yeah, blank slate, and, right? Yeah. And so because of that, she's just genuinely uninteresting. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about that is that you can then project on her. <laughs> yeah. And that, that does seem to be like, that's why it's sort of like the, 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 the down, the trap that a lot of um, 
stories fall into with the protagonists is that they want you to be able to project onto it. So they forget to give them even a base personality. I don't think that's entirely true with Nine. But then again, you know, Nine, it, it quite almost quite literally is built by a scientist to, to, to be what it is. We do see five admires that it has, maybe it's two admires that Nine has carved wood and molded copper. And this implies that you pointed out the hands when we talked about six. Once you start noticing the, the subtle differences in the design of each of these and the materials especially used in their hands, in their eyes, in, their, in this, the cloth itself, used for each one it is interesting it's and you can see sort of the thought process of this scientist doing these experiments and how he tried different materials out or tried different uh, structural designs of each of these out i have a big question about them are <laughs> would you say that they experience pain when they get injured i don't know I love that I don't know anything about this movie. They definitely experience fear, but I don't know if it's a fear of pain, interestingly enough. But it almost seems like it. I mean, there are moments where, like, they're fighting the bird contraption and Nine almost falls off, like, the bell tower thing. And he looks down and it gives us this idea that they're, like, incredibly high up and we know that he's really small. So we're like, oh, that would be a fall. But, like, would he feel it? Would he just get up and, like, keep going? I'm so glad you said fear because that was going to be my next question, is if not pain, do they do they experience fear? And is that fear simply a self-preservation sort of protocol? Like a, like a Roomba mm, is designed mm. not to run full speed into a wall because that would damage itself, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not afraid of walls. It's not, it doesn't have a fear of walls. It just has something programmed into it to avoid getting damaged because a Roomba also doesn't feel pain if it gets damaged. I think, yes. I think it's definitely a self-preservation thing of like, because also that's the point of almost being alive, isn't it? It's like, I'm alive and I'm going to keep myself alive as best as I can. And one has a bit too much of a self-preservation instinct. He's Mm -hmm. literally afraid of everything in their world, but everyone else is kind of just like, until they come face to face with these monsters. And then they're like, this is a bad thing. This is a threat. I could be damaged. I could be hurt. I could not live. Even though I don't even know if they knew that they could die before. Oh, I guess they did because they were like, oh, three and four are dead. Yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. They fear, they fear death as the end Whatever it is that they want to keep going. They definitely have a a sense of they want to keep going by any means necessary. Number one's version of that is we need to hide. We need to, it doesn't matter if we have no actual life or purpose. We just need to hide and cower in fear somewhere because that keeps us alive. That keeps us from death. Yeah, I I think that when, when the concept is introduced that their soul is being sort of sucked into this machine and Six says that they're still inside of there, and that, you know, he's got to go in. We've got to go and rescue them from inside of that fishbowl thing. I think that's <laughs> implying that they have this con that, that these little creatures have this concept of the afterlife as well. And I don't know what to make of that exactly, because the movie leaves a lot of questions unanswered. But interestingly, the robot enemies, the robots built by the amazing new invention robot, the big like villain robot, which itself follows this uh, the, this personality trait that I'm about to talk about. Experience, the robots experience fear. 
the the flying one that you described. Which oh is my, my god! Favorite designed thing in this visually designed thing in this movie, the Robodactyl or Tyranna kite robot kite thing. Equipped with the amazing. harpoon gun because why not? <laughs> Yo, and there's like a snake spider one later on, and like the, and of course the cat uh, skull one. But at one point, one of them gets destroyed, and the amazing new invention robot that that is creating them. It, it screeches either in anger or in pain or in fear. Like it's, it's upset that its baby mm-hmm. died. It seems to have distress over this thing that came from it. It's kin or maybe it's children from its perspective gotten killed. And I think that's interesting because these are not cold, emotionless robots. These are angry robots. These robots want to kill and they're angry and they get upset when when their fellows die (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i think so one of the amazing things about this is i also think that it's a a warning about like how we use technology and that like the robots could have been good the bad robots could have been good and it looks like they are powered from the same things that power our good robot in all intents and purposes they are made of the same things but these robots were taught to wage war and to kill and like that's what they think their purpose is and it also the movie kind of implies that they have some sort of lesser intelligence to not sort of like move beyond that base instinct to kill Mm. and so in a way, I almost feel bad for them that they're like trapped in that existence of I just want to kill, I just want to eliminate, and it all because of the way they were created, which is so harmful. And I think it's and then it really does make children. It starts up that whole factory. And then even towards the end, after they've like destroyed the factory and it comes like crawling out of the fires, like that thing looks pissed. Yep. Yeah, because all of its all of its babies were just killed by these things that and it made like chasing. hundreds. Yeah, um, it's interesting. We we get only sparse bits of, sparse bits of information about where they came from, but I, I think the movie makes it clear that the same scientists that created these rag dolls also created the mm-hmm. the robots because his government forced him to. Because the glorious leader, as they describe, the dictator of this country or this world, who is referred to in all the propaganda as glorious leader, forced this lead scientist to create these robots. And I do think that the the ragdolls were his secret experiment that he was working on as his own form of resistance against the government that was forcing him to build these murder machines. Because we get... Like I said, sparse bits of information. There's there's a, 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 a newspaper headline at one point that says amazing new invention and it shows the villain robot at the end. So actually that's why I refer to this robot as amazing new invention or ANI. It doesn't mm-hmm. it, I don't think it has a name in this movie, but I like calling it the ANI robot. We see a a whole like propaganda video that tells us about how the Chancellor, the glorious leader promises progress through technology. And there's a headline in a newspaper that says, lead scientist creates quote unquote brain. Part of the article alludes to a non-toxic, non-carcinogenic substance, uh, something that is interacting with the environment. A lot of the words are deliberately cut off, but then there's another, we get this whole newsreel and there's another headline that says, machines turn against us, scientists, enemy of the state, Chancellor denounces machine inventor. And there's a quote 
where the chancellor is saying, this traitor has led us astray. And he gives a speech during this propaganda video that the chancellor does where he says, science has turned its sinister hands against us. People of our mighty state, join me in repelling the iron fist of the machine. So it's interesting if you track, the, at least my theory of how, of like, if you track how this war went down, right? So mm-hmm. it seems like chancellor, uh, dictator, glorious leader promised the, the people we're building this technology. I have this scientist building this technology that is going to automate everything and make life easier for everybody. And we're going to become the global superpower through innovation, through technology, through technological superiority, I think is the, was the goal most likely. Mm-hmm. And they designed these, these robots that were probably designed to be quote unquote peacekeepers. They have these Gatling guns, they have all these weapons of destruction, but they seem to be designed as like, quote unquote, peacekeepers. So they have all of these dangerous things, but it's not to use them against people, it's to use them against our enemies and to keep us safe from things, right? But then of course, the scientists that built them, because of his scientific imperative, and I guess his compassion, he gave them a life of their own. He gave them autonomy in some way. He allowed them to think independently. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, they, they thought themselves to the conclusion that humanity is bad for the world and needs to be exterminated. So, yeah. so they set about doing that. And at I that mean, point, honestly, it seemed to quite, be too late. I can't tell you how many times in movies and TV shows, Magneto's right. The robots are right. <laughs> yes. Like, they're right. Like, we do need to go... The problem is our own self-preservation instincts. We don't ne- necessarily need to go. We just need to change our ways. But the question is, will we, will those empowers allow us to yada, yada, yada. Anyway, I do think that the interesting thing about this movie that I wish it had touched more on is, the, is that xenophobic concept of like mm-hmm. the other and protecting us. I think they even say it in like one of the Captain Marvel, not Captain Marvel, Captain America movies where they're like, you know, whenever a government says that they're trying to win a war before it starts, innocent people die. Or, like, this idea that, like, xenophobia will eventually be turned onto its own citizens because eventually you'll begin to question... I'm going to use real-life examples. Like, people are very often xenophobic towards the Latinx community and are like, oh, you know, build the wall or whatever. And that leads to... Because you're trying to keep the other out, right? You're trying to keep jobs in, quote unquote. You're trying to keep people out. And that leads to questioning the, I don't know, what's the right word, but the like allegiance and the the purity of people in the States, right? Mm. We're already citizens. You're like, oh, but you aren't really from here. Go back to where you're from. And it's like, motherfucker, I was born here, first of all. Yeah, you know what it is? It's like the the there's a quote in I think Man of Steel. This is a weird maybe parallel, but bear with me here. Uh, go go Do with it. me on this journey, Jelani. Ta- tangent. I'm taking <laughs> I'm taking the tangent queen on a tangent. In Man of Steel, there's a line where Superman is responding to the press. They they're questioning like is he an alien from space or whatever, and he says, "I'm from Kansas." That's about as American as it gets. And I, I get what he's saying, and that's a, that's a very, that's like the, the prototypical Superman thing to say. But there, it is problematic if you really break it down, because it's like you're saying that if you're from the Midwest or if you're from like the, you know, this rural area, this farm country or whatever, that's what America is, as if like Boston 
or, you know, LA is not America as if like Texas is not America (laughs) or, you know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, it's kind of this problematic idea of there's a true America and there's a concept of a true American. Yeah. I mean, we've seen it before in this country. Japanese internment camps literally are a thing in our history. We took any Asian citizen and thought like, oh, they could be Japanese. We're putting them in the camps. Right. Truly, there is no winning with xenophobia. The only winning is to not have it. Because also yep. people are people. Like, shut the fuck up. Anyway. <laughs> I yeah, have to always do a social justice rally in a middle of a thing I'm talking about because it's who I am. You're in the right place for it, though, because this movie, I mean, this movie is very much alluding to those themes. The, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly building the instrument, we're designing the instruments of our own demise. We, you know, we, we built this amazing new invention, or the scientists built this amazing new invention, and it starts creating a legion of, like, laser bots and, like, gun bots. But by the time the apocalypse go down, goes down, and we're seeing these ragdoll creatures walk around this, this wasteland, it's building these creatures like the first one that we see that I would describe as, I have two different terms for them, Jelani. Which, I want, which one of these sounds better? Skelebots or bone bots? Maybe I like bone, bone bots. Bone I like bots. the okay. bone bots. Which is also such a horrifying thing to first think about and see that it literally yeah. took these corpses and these, like, it was like, what raw materials do I have? Okay, I have bones and I have broken machinery. All right, we're making bone bots to terrorize everybody. The and and it is it is fear that they're tapping into. I'm a hundred percent sure that these robots know fear and know how to weaponize fear because they take the corpse of number two and they, that was so cool. Yeah, and they <laughs> that was that terrifyingly is, cool. Of like, oh, these are smart, smart. These aren't just smart. These are emotionally intelligent robots that know that I cared for this person so that it can use its body to trick me. Yeah. <laughs> it's intense. And that's, if you're not, if, if you saw that, that woman and her child corpse in the car at the beginning of the movie and you still thought like, my kids are going to be okay for the rest of this movie. If it gets to that point where number two's lifeless body is, is basically a rattle or a tail at the end of this snake bot. Um, and it's using it as bait to draw them in closer and earn their trust or, the, or get them to follow it because they think they can rescue it. It, that's a very intense adult mature thing to think <laughs> about. And it's, it, it's haunting. The literal emotional scars from just like the concept of like, Oh my God, my friend who I thought was dead is alive oh no, they're not dead. Or like having to watch someone go through that. that (laughs) Um, I feel bad for the four-year-old who saw this movie by accident. Like, (laughs) No. (laughs) Another interesting thing about that snake spider one, the one with the two puppet, uh, it captures a couple of them. I think it captures number eight and number seven. And and it brings them to the A&I bot. And when it does... It, it presents them like a sacrifice and then sort of does this like prostrating mm-hmm. like move, like it's being subjugated. Like it's like, it's uh, you know, here's your sacrifice master and it's like worshiping it at the altar. And it's so weird to see a robot interact with its robot dad or its robot mom in that way. These aren't cold calculating emotionless things. They're very, very much driven by emotion. Mm-hmm. 
And speaking of subjugation, this is actually one of the funniest little dialogue exchanges in the movie. Number one, uh, orders number eight, subjugate them. And number eight's like, sub uh, who? And number one's like, just grab them. And they get into this, number one and nine get into this, this philosophical debate where one says, ever since you got here, everything has been unraveling. And I think unraveling is a fun word choice because they're, you know, made of sackcloth. cloth, yep. So because that's death to them. You're a curse, a fool, guided by pointless queries. Nine says, and you are a blind man guided by fear. And I think man is an interesting term there. Mm-hmm. Not just because it's a, like male voiced thing and that's a part of it, but just the fact that they see each other as men or people. Let's, let's use the word, the genderless term, people. And that's how they view each other uh, as full people. And one re- responds to, you're a blind man guided by fear. Sometimes fear is the appropriate response. And he says that um, because this, this robodactyl, this robo-kite, pteranodon thing with four red eyes, the harpoon tail gun comes like crashing through the stained glass window of the church that they're hiding out in. This thing is such a cool design. Jelani, it looks like uh, an ass blaster from Tremors 3. Um, are you familiar with Tremor, the Tremors series? I am not, but I'm going to look it up when I get, when we finish. Jelani, I'm so glad you asked about the Tremors series because <laughs> I have a lot to say. In Tremors, have you seen the first Tremors movie? No. Okay. Tremors is a really fun, like early 90s monster B horror movie about these sandworms that, that it takes place in Nevada, Nevada. And there's these sandworms that basically swim through the desert and come up from the ground and eat you. Um, in the second one, we find out that they evolve into these things called screechers. And then in the third movie, we find out that if the screechers evolve, they grow wings and they become ass blasters. And they're called that because they shoot this rocket fuel out of their behind and that propels them into the air. And they don't actually fly, Jelani, they glide. So I may have misspoke when I said they fly. No, 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 I'm loving the mythology. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that seemed that the design of this tyrannokite, ter- ter- robodactyl thing is very similar to visually to those. But it, I think it creates like the coolest action sequence in this movie when it's chasing them and they're all trying different ways to fight it. Number mm-hmm. eight just goes for it. It wedges its sword in, in. This thing has wings, but also like a fan blade, a, 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 a circular spinning fan that propels it. At one point, number eight throws his sword into the fan blade to wedge it and like stop it from being able to fly forward and stuff. And we get this great moment when they're up on the roof and you kind of described this earlier and one is going to fall if he doesn't let go of his cape and he, and he just can't let go of it. And he's very upset. And, and <laughs> he actually like at the end indignantly goes up to nine and, he, and after he loses it and he says, you owe me a cape. Why was, why, why are they materialistic? Why are the rag dolls? Why do they care about possessions? I think it's I think it's part of this like thing about identity that is so great about the film that they don't question their identity or their need for it because I mean I guess you could say that Seven wears the thing for tactical reasons um, that her little helmet but I mean like why does Eight scramble his brain with a magnet 
I mean, because he wants to, you know what I mean? Like, and yeah. I think that, I mean, it's possible that because they were living in this world pre all the death that one saw like religious iconography and decided to like adorn himself as such. I mean, they are hiding out in a church, but I also think it's just like vanity and like this need to be, you know, identifiable. I love that you brought up the magnet thing. Do you know what happens if you run a magnet over a hard drive? Yeah, you wipe it. Yeah. I wonder if number eight has really traumatic memories of the war and that's wh- that's why it, it gets so happy when it's running the magnet over its brain. It's literally wiping bad memories mm-hmm. away. I mean, it's ob- an obvious parallel for substance abuse and, and addiction, but do you think that's what it is? Do you think that's literally what it's doing? Like wiping memories, erasing its bad memories? I actually hadn't considered that. I thought it was just something he did for like fun or something he did to like, I was the kind of kid that like played with fire because I could, yeah. you know, because it was like this interesting thing that I was like, oh, it does this, like, ooh, it does this thing. And so in my mind, that's kind of what he was doing. But I also think that it, it's super possible that, I mean, they all look kind of traumatized to me. Yeah. Like, I mean, except for Nine, because he doesn't know anything. But, like, as soon as something happens, like, the second his friend dies, Nine looks extremely traumatized. Damn. If so, maybe I have a deeper love for Eight now and appreciation. Yeah. (laughs) The movie gets us into this uh, this point where we never get a a full-on answer to how these things were created or or exactly what's going on. But we, the dolls, the rag dolls, find this book called... Mm -hmm. The title on the front of the book is The Annals of Paracelsus. Jelani, there, <laughs> there is, sorry, they open, they actually, let me just say this, because they open the book, and this, this I think, get us into this whole discussion. They open the book, and there is a drawing of what looks like the, what we saw in the opening scene of the scientist leaning against this weird thing that looks like when you get an eye exam at the eye doctor. <laughs> um, <laughs> Great description. Great description. With with something that looks like number nine hanging, like we saw at the beginning of the movie, um, like he's looking through it. And there's, it's, it's basically an illustration of this transference procedure or mm-hmm. ritual uh, or whatever you might want to call it that he seems to be trying to perfect or invent perhaps. But um, Paracelsus is a, is, a, is a scientist from, I think, like the 15th century or 14th century that was an alchemist. And, of course, alchemy is the now debunked field of sciences of turning raw materials into, or I'm sorry, turning, what is it? It's turning metal into gold, right? That's the, the theory yeah. of alchemy. So I would actually like to uh, redact my earlier statement because I was like, oh, the soul transference is the only sort of magic that we see in this world. But I also think that from their perspective, it's not magic. Like I think, yeah, I mean, definitely in all the books that like alchemy was first written about, like people thought of it as like a science. They thought it was real and something like they, they thought it was simple science or not simple, but they thought it was science. And so I think that this movie also sort of categorizes it as science, even though we would not. I agree. I think, I think, yeah, I think what this movie is positing is that this scientist found the annals of Paracelsus, found Paracelsus's research and theories and hypotheses and, and ran with them and decided, you know what, maybe there was actually something to this theory, but let me apply modern science to the theory 
and mm-hmm. see if I can perfect the technique. Uh, and and I think in in practice in this movie, the scientists did. Inside of the book, we get, I had to pause and like really write this down and go on a whole rabbit hole tangent of research. Uh, but we see like a little bit of writing that someone on the internet loosely translated and because there was a whole message board discussion about this. Um, I'm going to try to link to it to get, to try to give credit to this user that, that did this translation, but it says in, in Latin, it's written, uh, transmutata vitae, adonsi, adone, ia, ia motor, bados, isia, velima, sade, inda, imi fonatoris, liculorum, kiome. And listeners, I should warn you, if you play that last 15 seconds of audio at half speed, it will summon a demon. So don't do that. Um, <laughs> just be careful. Uh, so I understood <laughs> anyway, one translation. I don't speak <laughs> any Latin, but I understood the word life. Vitae. Yeah. Because I yes. was a nerd for a while and kind of wanted to get a tattoo that was Ars Nova Vita Brevia, which is like, it's something that means like art is forever. I forgot the exact translation. Whatever. Continue. Okay. Well, uh, so transmutata vitae is clearly transference of life, transformation Mm -hmm. from one to another, from my soul inhabiting my human body into whatever I want to transmute it into. The rest of it is loosely translated, and there's a lot of space between the words and a lot of it's cut off, but it's something like walk, walk, actually, from there, of free or lawful, how? But I think the free or lawful part is the most interesting little bit of that because it sort of implies like, is there free will or does it follow lawful protocols? And those are sort of the two different types of creations that we see the scientist has made. He's made the ragdolls that seem to have their own free will and these these destructive robots, these killer bots, the skelebots or bone bots that are lawful. They were built for the government. They were built to be agents of the government. And therefore they have a lot of the same evil intent, but they follow like cold, not cold, but lawful protocol. The lawful um, evil in the character chart. Mm-hmm. Yes, there it is. There it is. So I want to read something that is directly from Paracelsus's journal. And mm-hmm. the theory is Paracelsus thought that they that believed in this theory of the homunculus. And are you, are you familiar with that term, homunculus? Yes. Okay. A homunculus being a, a small human being, you know, usually something like six inches to a foot tall. There was a theory back in 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 back in classic science of the 1400s, also known as preformationism, that a human is fully formed inside of a sperm cell and just grows in size and Mm -hmm. is not, I don't know, that you're not like a baby version of yourself that forms gradually into an adult, but that you're a fully formed adult person, or that's not even really the most accurate way to describe it, but that you're, that you're not like a single sperm cell that then combines with a zygote. And then, you know, all Mm -hmm. of these, the cellular regeneration happens at a rapid exponential rate. None of that also was known an incredibly to incredibly like time. patriarchal view of creation. Yeah. And and the the theory was originally applied to just animals, but then I guess biologists of the time started to believe that that humans followed the same sort of incorrect biology. But <laughs> this is how it is believed that a homunculus is formed. 
from Paracelsus's diary and spoiler warning or gross, gross warning, content warning. This is gross, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to read the whole thing (laughs) so that you have to experience this, that the sperm of a man be putrefied by itself in a sealed cucurbit, like a gourd. A cucurbit is like a, like a pumpkin maybe. Um, For 40 days, so that the sperm of a man may be putrefied inside a pumpkin for 40 days with the highest degree of putrefaction in a horse's womb, or at least so long that it comes to life and moves itself and stirs, which is easily observed. After this time, it will look somewhat like a man, but transparent, without a body. If after this, it be fed wisely with the arcanum of human blood and be nourished for up to 40 weeks and be kept in the even heat of the horse's womb. A living human child grows therefrom, with all its members like another child, which is born of a woman, but much smaller. To me, this sounds like a cloning process, like mm-hmm. an early medieval cloning process. Um, so you're taking a human DNA, the DNA that they would have had available at the time, or what they would have thought is the only thing that contains DNA is the, your sperm. But they're saying that if you take that, put it inside of a a pumpkin, put that inside of a horse's womb, putrefy it, let it let it completely rot. It'll decompose, I guess, and then that's all you need. You don't you don't need any other part of you don't need a woman involved in this process somehow. <laughs> a, mm-hmm. a fully human clone, but but smaller in scale, will grow out of this horse womb. Do you think? Uh, do you, what do you think of this? this um, I think it's really think kinky. Um, kinky, yeah. Kinky. I think it's very telling of our cis male-centric views for most of history that they were like, yeah, uh, you don't need a womb or an egg. You don't need a human. You don't need another human. You can just use yourself because you are a strong, independent man and men are everything. <laughs> like, it was just such... <laughs> Someone was really, like, feeling themselves and was like, yeah, I can make a baby by myself. But I will come out and say that I am a huge, not huge, moderate anime nerd. And there's an anime called Full Metal Alchemist, also animated, that is about alchemy and homunculus. There's this sort of first homunculus, they call him the dwarf in the flask. Um, Ooh, okay. And then his name becomes Father because he decides to change it. And then most of this happens like pre-story. But basically, he is a homunculus and he is trying to like perfect himself. He's trying to attain like godhood. He wants to surpass men because can you, you know, des- homunc- Can you describe mm-hmm. him physically? Is he tiny? So originally, he's this tiny little shadow monster that exists in a glass. And then he basically escapes and attains like, basically looks like a man. And for yeah. all intents and purposes, you would think that he is a man. Like, full height, limbs, looks normal. Huh. But he wants to attain godhood, and so he splits himself into seven different parts. And he names each part after a different sin. And the idea is that he's ridding himself of sin. He's trying to become perfect, which I think you, ties into our movie. <laughs> yeah, and seven, seven is a number that comes up a lot, especially in religiosity and, and religious writings and theory and... What's the word I'm searching for? Well, whatever. It comes up a lot mm. in, in as symbolism, religious symbolism. Do you think that there's significance to the number nine in this movie? The fact that there are nine of them? I believe so, but I think it might be something just for the writer. <laughs> like, I think, I mean, maybe other people know, maybe it's out there for us to understand, but I think, I mean, I'm also, 
I'm, this is from a very narcissistic point of view, but I am sometimes when I write, I'm writing something that's like an inside joke for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe that's what it was. Cause I don't know of any like important nines, mm-hmm. you know, even with the, the different personality types, I think there are like, or, or the different like intelligences. I think that there are seven types of intelligences that they teach in psychology or whatever, you know, like interpersonal, intrapersonal nature, blah, 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 blah. like the, so the ego, like all of those. Kind yeah. Of- like, so I have just no idea where nine came from. <laughs> so Me I want to believe that it's him. Even in like religious, it's the only thing that immediately comes to mind is like the nine circle of the nine circles of hell, um, the nine levels mm-hmm. of, of, you know, but, but purgatory, but like, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if there is a reason. It's also the German word for no, but I don't think that's, that's significant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm even trying to think because like the movie I think could have been done with less people, but also I think that five and seven die pretty early on. So maybe they were just like, and we'll make nine, but they'll get down the seven. (laughs) True. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. So each of, each of the dolls, each of the homunculuses, homunculi, homunculi, I guess it'd be homunculi, like octopus, octopi, each of the homunculi one through nine, has their own bit of personality, has their own bit of knowledge and their own bit of whatever it is that they contribute to the group as a whole. But they're clearly much stronger when they work together, when they're not at odds with each other, when they mm-hmm. when they all work towards the same common goal and purpose. Towards the end of the, of the film, they're, they're, tr- they're actually fighting against each other as much as they are against the enemy because... Six has allowed himself to get absorbed into the fishbowl thing, the, mm-hmm. the muon Heartbreaking. trap. Like, yeah. Felt unnecessary. Um, it did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like a gratuitous death because we had already just seen someone die. Eight dies, right. We see eight die and then the thing comes crawling out of the factory and Six is like, no, don't kill it yet. They're trapped inside. We have to free them. Right. Um, and then dies trying to prove that point to them, which it, it just felt wrong. It felt like he could have explained that when they were farther away. <laughs> well, he like didn't have a pen and paper. <laughs> you know, he didn't have a way to communicate that <laughs> without pen and paper. <laughs> he has to draw everything. Well, he, his sacrifice, though, is what it's what convinces nine to figure out a different way. But it's also what convinces one that this thing has to be destroyed. It's too dangerous. We've we've been toying around with this idea of saving everybody for too long. That's impossible. It's not going to happen. So mm-hmm. Six's sacrifice convinces both parties, one and nine, of their own theory even more so than they already um, believed it. And they come to odds, but but eventually they they realize that they kind of have to make a sacrifice in order to rescue their friends. A couple just visual details that I think are really interesting is we've got Elijah Wood voicing the uh, protagonist of this movie. And this is like in the mid, this is, this came out in 2000, 2009 appropriately. So this is definitely well after the Lord of the Rings movies came out, but there's definitely like shots of these little creatures like going towards this giant factory that itself, the factory itself looks like a robot with like a big giant red eye. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also kind of looks like the wasteland of Mount Doom and like the eye of Sauron is sort of like looming in the, in the distance in this wasteland. And I Mm -hmm. think that is almost deliberately 
meant to invoke the Lord of the Rings, especially if you cast Elijah Wood, uh, Frodo, as, mm-hmm. as one of these characters? What do you think? I am pretty sure I haven't seen Lord of the Rings. I think maybe I was in a room where it was playing once. Although okay. it is one of those iconic things that even if you haven't seen it, you kind of know about it because of pop culture. And so I also kind of clocked that reference. I think that the robot itself to me really feels like the eye of Sauron of like this all knowing, all seeing thing because it like even finds them. Like how does the pterodactyl thing find them? We don't know. It just knows where Mm -hmm. they are because it's a robot and it's smarter than us. Yeah. That's a good question. How does it find them? I wonder if it has anything to do with like when it, when it made the sock puppet out of two, I wonder if it like took any of two's memories of where they are or something sick like that. It might've been really twisted. Well, when they're finally like face to face with this thing, something that's kind of interesting is that when they're running away from it, the ANI, like the, the mother robot, it kind of has like its own legs and it's, it's chasing them. And they're using, they're using the weapons, the, the conventional human weapons that were left behind from this war against it as well as they can. They have this artillery gun that it takes mm-hmm. all four of them to, to operate. They have, you know, one of them has to load it. The twins have to turn the crank and aim it. And they have to fire it. Like I think Seven has to go and fire it. But uh, they use it really effectively to sort of blow off the legs from this thing. And as mm-hmm. it's chasing them, our trenches and barbed wire fences and stuff that we built to fight in this war, when I keep saying we, like the human side of this war that took place, actually seem to work pretty effectively against this one machine that's chasing these things. And I think that if Nine hadn't stopped them, they could have actually fired again in, into it and killed it. But luckily, Nine does stop them before they do that because, yeah, the, the rest of the souls are trapped inside. I don't think the movie explicitly answers this, but it but if they had destroyed it, I don't think they would have had the opportunity to bury them properly and then they couldn't have ascended to wherever they ascended to at the end <laughs> when yeah, they all had I their think, little, like, graves. I think that that's the, the assumption that they want us to make is that that couldn't have happened. I don't know if I believe that assumption. I feel like you shoot that thing in the eye, you rip the thing out, and you go about your merry way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if I full. I mean, I bought into it because I had been watching this movie for, like, an hour and was, like, invested in it. But, like, yeah. I don't know if I sit down and think, like, yeah, that was the best possible way for them to handle that. <laughs> Emotionally, it, it, from an emotional storytelling point, it gives us this great moment where one is uh, seen sitting. I love this this camera shot, quote unquote, because it's animated camera shot. This frame, this animated frame of one sitting on a bottle of like alcohol, whiskey or something. So obviously it can't drink. And even if it did, who knows if it would get drunk. But just the visual of this leader confronted with all of his mistakes and his regrets and realizing, like reflecting on all of the choices he's made as he's tried to lead his people and keep them safe all this time, sort of realizing that he's been the one leading them into danger and that Nine has been right all along that they need to fight for a better future. They need to try to free their friends rather than just destroy the thing that killed them. And he's sort Mm -hmm. of sitting on this bottle of this empty bottle of alcohol and Nine comes up behind him, sort of determined to sacrifice himself. And one has this really great moment where he gets angry and he's looking at Nine 
about to sacrifice himself to the creature. So I guess so that nine can go. I don't know what his nine's plan is at this point. Cause if he, if he gets sucked inside of it, I don't know how he plans to rescue the rest of them. Yeah. He just sort that of was... puts himself in front of it. Like he's sta- like, he's standing in front of a, a city bus, like <laughs> that's about to go through an intersection. And one has, says to himself with like a lot of bitterness in his voice, like really, really great Christopher Plummer voice work. They left us nothing, nothing. Why do we have to right their wrongs? And I just love that little bit of fuck these people. <laughs> yeah. These people that built us, that built this whole world, they left nothing for us. So they left nothing for us, but they expect us to save it, whatever is left. Or like, well, I don't know, how do, you, how do you interpret that? They left us nothing. Why do we have to right their wrongs? I think it's part of, a generational rage that we as millennials have and that a lot of most all of Gen Z has of just like, wow, everyone else who's come before us fucked everything up to the degree where we are screwed. And yet somehow, if we are to continue to live, we have to fix all of this. And isn't that unfair? That's what I see because I feel that so deep in my core. And I imagine, I mean, I don't know the director's life, but if you're someone who is college educated in the United States and you're, you know, not 60 years old, there's a good chance you have a mountain of student debt. So, (laughs) yes, I mean, I think that could be a good inspiration for kind of what's going on. I think it's also... This movie also feels very influenced by like kind of like the 60s to me of like mm. the anti-Vietnam War era where we were just like, why would we want another war? War is terrible. It's disastrous. And yet, you know, what happened? We went to war and there were all of these regrets. So that's a really good point that it's it represents like that that generational inheritance of the past's sins or mistakes and in order for the world to get better, we have to sort of accept that, yeah, it's not our fault that they, things are like this, but we're, but they're not, the people that are at fault aren't really motivated to fix it either. So if we want to make, if we're going to be the ones who are younger and therefore will spend more time in this world that's been left to us, unfortunately, we're the ones that have to pick up the work gloves and do the work. And I think and that, that it's also like, it's part of your duty because there are other people here. Like if one yes. was by himself, it'd be fine to just sit and sulk and be like, man, this world is fucked up. I'm not fixing anything. But like there are other people here with you who are also suffering and it is your job to like ease the collective suffering. And that is that beautifully illustrates the point that like on their own, each piece of this soul can't survive on its own. They need to work together. They need to collaborate humanity needs cooperation because you're absolutely right it is it's important that one has that perspective and i think it's valid that one has that bitterness like you know these people we owe them nothing how dare they do this to us but his very next thought is he sees nine who is also aware of that but isn't bitter about it willing to sacrifice himself for a better future for everybody else and the next line, the next thing that one says is sometimes one must be sacrificed. And he seems to, like, his eyes seem to widen, like he has this realization that, oh, one is quite literally me. Uh, <laughs> uh, I am indeed the one. And I mean, I think pushes, that's a great... 
<laughs> I, I am kind of a hater of the chosen one troupe. I think that mm-hmm. the idea of like, because I think that a lot of chosen one movies do it wrong where they're like, Oh, look at, and I'm specifically thinking about like a lot of the like karate, you know, uh, Japanese inspired films where they're mm-hmm. like, Oh, look, there's this woman often who's been training 30 odd years for this, but a man who just crawled out of nowhere is actually the chosen one. So we're going to train him too. He's going to surpass her in a day. And then he's going to defeat the evil that she could never have done. Lego movie. Right. <laughs> and like, it's such bullshit. But I think that, I mean, the concept of like, oh, I'm the chosen one because I'm literally one. I think that's fucking hilarious. and a great way to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so, so number nine somehow gets, get like, he achieves what he's trying to achieve. I really, audience, I don't know how to explain the ending of this movie <laughs> to you if you haven't visually seen it. It, it makes sense while you're watching it. In, a, in, a, in, like, in a way where it's like, you know, you just, you just kind of, mm-hmm. you, you, you puff the joint a little bit harder and you're like, yeah, yeah, no, nah, the, green, the green shit's moving into the little disc and then the disc is popping the green shit out. I get it. Yeah, all right. <laughs> and then they all say goodbye to each other. It's cool. But like I think it's I think it's beautiful though cuz it was also It a, is like, beautiful. It's a comeback to the earth moment and that it and the idea that life lives in cycles that like we live, we die, we go back to the earth and life mm-hmm. continues on. And like they die, their souls like pass over or whatever and then it rains. And I hadn't really considered it until that moment, but it felt but, like, looking back, I'm like, oh, this world does kind of seem like a desert almost. It does seem lifeless and, like, there hasn't been rain or, like, any sort of way to continue on even plant life. Like, all we – I don't even – do we see trees? Do we see grass? Definitely not. I'm just, right? Like, I'm trying to think and I think all we see is – buildings and machinery and scaffolding type bullshit but there's no like there is no life on this planet or this space right now i just got i just got i'm trying like i'm trying to process all of this because it's like (laughs) you just had a brain blast from jimmy neutron you just like everything like clicked (laughs) when you said rain because i didn't notice the rain somehow somehow i didn't notice that detail of this is the first time rain is falling right after these green vapors go up into the sky it's okay because because i want to accept that this is not magic that it's science i want to and Mm -hmm. the movie i think wants me to but it's hard it's hard (laughs) it's really it's really hard uh because they don't give us a lot to work with but yeah because Rain is just when the vapor in the clouds, the water droplets condense to a point where they become too heavy to stay uh, suspended as gas clouds. So there is no water. Water is the source of life, at least symbolically in a lot of, you know, in a lot of film and, mm-hmm. and art. Water is the source of life. And, you know, quite literally, scientifically, it is too. There is no water in this movie. There's no place where we see like lakes, uh, rivers, or any any bodies of water, natural water, or any water, even like drinking water that's left behind anywhere. In order for these, I, I wonder if yeah, I wonder if these these creatures, their soul, the green thing that we're seeing, is some form of liquid vapor 
that is not present in most of this barren earth, this barren wasteland. And Nine's journey to, to get them, to get that vapor trapped into whatever this disc is, that disc then distributes the vapor into the atmosphere so that it can make the clouds denser and get the clouds to drop rain and then can like basically restart the cycle of rain turning in, you know, turning into water deposits, turn, getting evaporated, mm-hmm. turning back into clouds and start that, I guess, the greenhouse cycle. And that's why they're green. Uh, <laughs> man, it's a half-baked theory because I'm just, because you just introduced the idea to me that it rains at the end of the movie, but, but I think, no, but I think there's it also something works. to it. There's something there. Because there's also, there's something about the machine when they introduced it and they were talking about what it runs on. They mentioned it's natural it's mm. not like an oil-based thing. It's not you said you said it earlier. So yeah, some sort of non-toxic, that. non-carcinogenic <laughs> substance. Yeah. Yeah. It's something to do with life and air, water, whatever, powering this machine. And that in turn is also something that brings life to the planet, I think. And the only character that could have answered this question for us dies at the beginning of the movie, the scientist, because mm-hmm. even the protagonists are not sure. Uh, we're left with the only survivors at the end are nine, seven, and three and four. Is that correct? Everybody, everybody else, I think, dies? Yes. Which I yeah, also definitely. think is so, like, it's, a, it, it's kind of an even split almost, which I guess might have been intentional, but I don't like because of the fact that five of them died. I'm like, <laughs> what was the point? Yeah, it's rough. Uh, <laughs> Spoiler alert, five of them are going to die if you haven't seen this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but even even they don't seem to quite understand this because Seven says, these are the closing lines of the movie, Seven asks, what happens next? And Nine says, I'm not sure, but this world's ours now. It's what we make of it. Objectively, if if these four creatures are the only living things left on the planet... I guess that's okay because they don't necessarily need to eat, so they don't need to grow food. But who knows? Maybe there are. Maybe there is some form of life. Maybe there's some sort of form of insect life or fish life in the ocean or something that they're going to be able to resurrect and save. They they couldn't save humanity, but I think that maybe they can save the planet itself. Yeah, but I, I also think that that's an interesting concept of whether or not the machines also killed animals. Because we do, mm. we don't see any animals, and we do see that, that it didn't that it uses like the cat skull. So there's obviously like an abundance of dead animals. But I also wonder if it directly killed them, or if that was just the product of like the machines have taken over, and now like this world is desolate. Interestingly, yeah, there is a movie poster. Most of them say when our world ended, their mission began. But there's definitely one. Oh, okay. It's just okay. Yeah, it's just the the synopsis. I, I don't know if it's on any, any movie posters, but it's definitely like the quick synopsis of this movie. A rag doll that awakens in a post-apocalyptic future holds the key to humanity's salvation. I don't think humanity achieves salvation by the end of this movie. Do you? I think that's open to interpretation. I think that in a lot of different types of films and media, we see this idea of like a legacy and like this idea of what you leave behind is this sort of last impression of what you are and what you did for the planet. And it's really terrible that humanity like made this awful mistake of these machines 
specifically this like creator. But in the end, he was able to do something and he was able to make these dolls and the dolls righted that wrong. They like destroyed the machine and they maybe possibly brought life back to the planet, which I think is, it's not a salvation in the sense of like humanity will live on, but in a sense of like their souls and their legacy is now like pure, has been healed, fixed, I don't know. Redeemed maybe? Redeemed, redeemed. Yeah, I'm so I'm sorry I went on like a, I got like caught in like a wormhole now because I, I, I'm going to send you all of these. I'm going to download each of these and send them to you. I found a series of posters that were made that show each of the rag dolls and their number and it, and each of them. So like one. Are three and four together or separate? I can't find three and four. But uh, so what I'm seeing so far is one to protect us, two to inspire us. Can't find three and four. Five, and it shows five with like a telescope to guide us. Six, to lead us. Can't find seven, but I'm sure she's in here somewhere. Eight, to guard us. And then nine, to save us. I'm going to find, I'm going to find all of them. <laughs> but I don't want to like, take that up they, too much time. I love that at, at some point in the marketing room, they were like, okay, we're going to make a clear distinction between protect and guard. Somehow. <laughs> they didn't, but they announced it anyway. Like, the fact that one is called the protector and one is, like, to guard. Like, love that. Yep, semantics. Love it. Yeah, so at the end of the day, Jelani, this is a, a gorgeous movie. It's a very beautiful story, and it's it really it needs to be watched rather than told because it's, it's beautiful visuals. It's very well animated. Mm-hmm. The animation holds up. Like, all of the little details of, of the materials... The human inventions, the rubble, all of the little just things in the scientist's workshop, thimbles and thread and cogs and just things that are like glasses and mugs and stuff that just laying around. It's really cool to see all of that everyday stuff in, in, in this scale from this perspective of these homunculi and, and how they're navigating this whole world and everything. Is there anything that we, we in the movie itself that you don't think we've, we've covered that you want to talk about that we, that we might have missed? No, I think this is incredibly thorough and much more thorough than I would have been because I'm such a highlights, lowlights, random tangent person. If I was in charge of this, we would have talked for five hours and never gotten to half of this stuff. <laughs> um, so I thank you for that. I am not an organized person. Wait, I can't leave without asking. What's your sun, moon, rising? I have no idea. Help me out. Oh, right. We have this Gemini. discussion. That's all I know. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. I have to find out because this is very important to me. But no, I thank you so much. This was lovely. It's, you know, it's a short movie. It's an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and 19 minutes, really. And it's, it's very watchable. And if you haven't seen it, please watch it because it's not that well known. I don't think there was ever plans for a sequel. It doesn't seem like a sequel or trilogy kind of movie. It seems like Mm -hmm. this is a whole contained story and it ends when it ends. But I do wish that there was more appreciation for it. I don't want there to be sequels Mm -hmm. or ongoing series of it or anything like that. But I kind of wish, I don't know. The only thing that I found that Shane Acker has worked on that I've seen since then I'm sure he's successful and he's doing fine, but uh, he he did the visual effects for the Total Recall remake, which was oh. underwhelming. But I mean, the visual effects were obviously great, but the movie itself, not that great. So Shane Acker, I'm sure he's enjoying a, a good career, but I just think there's not enough appreciation for this movie, Nine, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think, I'm, honestly, I think it's probably like, 
honestly, probably like a nine out of 10, if not a 10. <laughs> the really only flaw to me is that they tried to pull some romantic bullshit, but it didn't yeah. go anywhere enough for me to like rip on the movie for it. Yeah, the movie at the end of the day asks more questions than it answers, and that's what it should do. It should build a mystery and not solve everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in a new way, I think that a lot of science fiction doesn't do. Like, even from the jump, just saying, like, yeah, these are going to be robots, but we're not going to have them question their identity. Like, I think that that's new, because I think that so much, start, like like you said, I think so much uh, robots start with questioning their own identity and if they're human or not, and this started post their awakening. They are mm. already, you used the word, oh, self-aware. They're already self-aware and don't yeah. have to question why or what. Would you say that this movie is a plus one, neutral, or minus one for robots? I think this movie is a plus two for robots. I think this movie (laughs) says, robots, you can do it. You can be whatever you want. You, well, not whatever. I mean, there's a complicated message about, you know, the robot's intelligence versus their intelligence. Or the AI's intelligence versus the homunculus intelligence and, like, what that means for them overcoming their programming or, like, whether or not the robots or the homunculuses are fine because their programming was different, da 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 But I also think that the at the end of the day, these are human robots who do and are. And I don't think that they are everything that the scientists wanted them to be. And I also think that they're more than he probably wanted them to be. Like, I don't know that he wanted them to be cowards, but I also don't know that he wanted them to hold life so dearly. I mean, obviously mm. he wanted them to consider life maybe, but like, I think they really cling to it and they're like, life is worth protecting to them. Hmm. Okay. Um, Period. What about for dinosaurs? Does this movie do anything for dinosaurs? Are there dinosaurs in this movie? Yes, the pterodactyl is a dinosaur. <laughs> um, it's a dinosaur robot plus one because it was cool. Okay. Yeah, it is very cool. It is very clearly like the design of like a, a, a dinosaur. I would also argue, this is a stretch, but I would argue that because the world starts with humanity is is gone, the world is over. That the humans are dinosaurs? Shut up, I love that. <laughs> well, all we have is bones, fossils, right? We just have fossil <laughs> records, that's it. I love that. Oh my God. <laughs> I love so, that. I love a stretch. I love an argument. In general, especially you're, I think you're a good person to ask this because, like you said, you're, you're. Not, this isn't like robots and dinosaurs are not your typical fare. Your, your typical thing that you're drawn to. Out of those two, though, which do you think is cooler? Just as a general concept in art, sci-fi, you know, pop culture, which one is cooler, robots or dinosaurs? I think robots, because I think that robots just have like an untapped potential, really just an unlimited potential of one, what is a robot? And two, what do we need them to be and do? And in a lot of cases, they're like to advance humanity. But if you think about it, that humanity is pretty limited. Like robots could do almost anything and can get us almost anywhere. So I think that robots Mm. are the more interesting ones. But I will say that, oddly enough, I don't, I haven't seen Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, mostly because I think that men appreciate it too much and anything that men are like, this is genius. I'm like, um, okay. But like <laughs> fantasy lore like that is honestly my bread and butter. <laughs> like, okay. Give me, ma- I love magic. Give me magic any day. Give me magic and some dumb set of magic rules. And I'm like, yeah, this is it. Cool. Cool. <laughs> I think you'd like Lord of the Rings, honestly, if you like Matt. Like, just look at it from a magic perspective. Don't look at it from, like, a I know, and I know the plot, and I know the things, but I'm like, I can't let men be happy, so I can't watch it. (laughs) It, I saw Star Wars 
like yeah. four years ago. And I still okay. haven't seen all of them. You don't need to. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and I'm telling you, you don't need to see all of them. Just see the ones that appeal to you, honestly. I've seen, like, one through five. Yeah, because they should be fun. They shouldn't be a chore that you have to, like, force yourself to sit through every single episode, every single, you know. And and they all bring something different to the table. What's that? I gagged when I saw Yoda for the first time. I was watching it with my friend, and I, Mm -hmm. like lost my fucking mind because everybody loves and worships Yoda like a motherfucking god and the fact that he's this ugly like I knew what he looked like before mm-hmm. but like watching his animation not animation but like puppetry or whatever puppetry. the fuck I was just like this is the ugliest little monster I love it and that's the punchline that's what makes it so great mm-hmm. I love that about Yoda okay I do have to ask mm-hmm. have you seen the theories about Judge Binks yes so that he's a Sith Lord do you believe the theories? 100%. I also believe the theories. I am a 100% <laughs> Judge Big Sith Lord stan. I wish they would make it canon. <laughs> yeah, man, that'd be great. There, There is actually sort of a canon ending to Jar Jar Binks' character. He very sadly, tragically, ends up becoming like a clown that performs in like a public square on Coruscant. Like he, get, he gets stripped of all of his power from the Senate and... He just like performs for children's entertainment uh, as a clown in the public square for food. Um, it's a very, very tragic ending for this character. <laughs> Damn. Um, and he really could have been something, but everybody was too impatient. Everybody hated him yep. so much. Could've they been were the like, oh, can't do this. He could have been the Phantom Menace that they were referring to. And so, I think it's such a good like foil to Yoda because the, the whole yep. thing about Yoda was like, the unexpected, like that this little creature was like the greatest Jedi or whatever, and that he was going to train Luke Skywalker, da 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 And so like that this bumbling buffoon, Jar Jar Binks, was actually masterminding everything and mm-hmm. was playing games with everybody. I love that. I yeah. love that. <laughs> <laughs> Jelani, I have got two bonus questions before we wrap up. My first bonus question, Jelani, this is a section of Robots versus Dinosaurs that we call... What's your snack? Jelani, what's your snack? When you used to go to the movie theater, do you have like a movie, a favorite movie snack? And when you watch movies at home, do you have that movie snack or a similar movie snack? I'm a very big snacker. I'm also vegan. So when I go to the movies, I often can't get anything. I'll get like, if it's a good movie theater, like the really wild ones in Brooklyn that have like French fries, love that. But before I was vegan, I would go to like Dwayne Reed and I would sneak in a box of Edamons cookies, uh, little chocolate chip soft bake. That was my shit. And soft, I, bake the, soft bake is the way to go with chocolate chip cookies every time. And even though I'm vegan and can't eat them anymore, that's my final answer for both. Brilliant. All right, Jelani, I have one final bonus question. If we were to recast any two characters in this movie with Danny DeVito and Whoopi Goldberg... How would you recast it, and how would that improve the movie? First of all, first of all, first of all, love that question. Love that question. <laughs> I think Danny DeVito, I would give the robot a voice. I would give the robot a voice. It would be Danny DeVito. It'd be fucking hilarious. Yep. Correct answer. <laughs> um, and I would love to see maybe eight as Whoopi Goldberg, because I think she does stoic really well. Ooh, okay. I almost want number one to be Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, I also see that. Because I could 
Cause I'd be more, I'd, I think I might be more convinced like hearing her authoritative voice and like, mm-hmm. you know, that, that like, maybe she's right. Maybe she has a point. And I think it's important that you kind of think one might be right. And nine might be wrong for part of the movie that like one is the one that's actually keeping them safe. Cause, cause objectively speaking, nine fucks everything up, messes everything up at the beginning. Yes, he gets he does. everyone killed. Um, Jar Banks <laughs> of the group. I do see that. And I do appreciate that, but I also think that, for, and I, I thought this while I was watching the movie, I was like, wow, they should really try to have made one more believable. But I also think that that was just a me thing um, where I was like, oh, maybe I just have issues where I don't like to listen. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, they do so the like, job yeah, of sh- like, they show, they show like eight obviously is not that much of a critical thinker. That's why eight follows. Six is kind of trapped in its own mind and, and stuck in a loop where it's just drawing things constantly. So it's not necessarily following. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of doing whatever. Is there. Yeah. And five is very reluctant to follow. So they do show a lot of different re- responses to one's philosophy. And I think that's really cool. In the little mm-hmm. bit of characterization that we get from everybody, we do see like, the philosophies of all of them clashing at different times. But yeah, excellent recasting. I think I think giving giving the robot a voice and that voice being Danny DeVito is what would, would have set this movie over the top and made it a 10 out of 10 instead of a 9 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I'd be laughing so fucking hard. I actually think I unironically love Danny DeVito. I think I ironically, mm-hmm. unironically love him. I think so too. He's fantastic. He's, inc- he's incredibly talented. Jelani, any final thoughts about Nine? Phenomenal. And I think, again, up there, top tier non-children's animation. Because I'm not going to say... I think you're right. I don't think that it's necessarily adult, but I think it's not necessarily a children's animation. And I think we need better animation like this. Like, I think we've gotten close. I think we've gotten really good children's animation that touches on more adult themes. Like, if you've never seen Steven Universe, I love Steven Universe. I think it's great. I want more explicit, this is how we deal with gentrification, terrorism, xenophobia, all of it. Excellent. Well said. Jelani, tell, before, before you say goodbye, tell the audience where they can find you and talk a little bit maybe about your podcast. Um, hi, I'm Jelani. You can find me on Insta at Persephone's Garden, but it's spelled with a Y at the end of Persephone. And then you add an S and then it's the word garden. And that is on Insta. And then you can find me at Queer Messiah on Twitter. It is the word queer and then the word mess and then a Y and then an A-H. And it's like Messiah, but with a Y. I'm doing a bit where I explain this really poorly because I think it's funny. <laughs> I think that'll help people remember the spelling. though, And it'll be linked in the show notes, of course. I have a lovely little podcast with two of my friends, Sajda and Gamal, where we talk about culture, but mostly just try to make each other laugh, I think is the best description of pod queens. It is borderline nonsensical. We (laughs) do not have an agenda. We do not have a goal or a mission at the beginning of each episode. We have a topic, we talk, and we laugh. And it's a really fun time. I have fun. It's a lot of fun. That's also going to be linked to where we're going to have a link to Pod Queens in the show notes. So listeners, check that out if you want to hear more of Jelani as well as Sajda and Gamal, who you have, if you've been listening to the past few episodes, because I sort of line these up back to back, you have heard them on our previous episodes talking about the Iron Giant, talking about how to train the dragon, now talking about nine. Jelani, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts. 
and feelings on Nine and for sharing those. Uh, I had a great time discussing this awesome movie with you. And it's really great to find somebody else that, that appreciates this movie as, as much as you do. So, um, so thank you so much. Oh my God, thank you. I had so much fun. I love this. I love ranting. Thanks, Jelani. Bye-bye. I can't tell you how many times in movies, in TV shows, Magneto's right. Hey y'all, I'm Gamal and I'm a culture queen. I got my finger on the pulse, mama. I am Sajda, I am your contrary queen. I am giving you devil's advocate realness. I'm Jelani, I'm a tangent queen. I'm going to distract us from whatever it is we're talking about. And you need to listen to Pod Queens, a podcast where three queens wade into the steamy waters of culture. New episodes drop every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, that's Pod Queens, spelled K-W-E-E-N-S. Because spelling is what? Fundamental. Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to apocalypsepodcastnetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard.